All right, let's look at Jeremiah. When I say Christmas, you think Jeremiah, right? Think Isaiah. We did Isaiah last week. We're talking about Christmas and the prophets. So why would we be in Jeremiah? He's a prophet. There, there you go. Jeremiah is an interesting story. Now, here's the thing. Really, you could almost pick any prophet. Because the prophets have a basic message. And their basic message is this. Things are terrible now, but God's going to make it all right. Someday. Now, that's a very simplified version of the, the message. God, what, what they say is that there is always the hope of better days. There's always the hope of something great coming. That God's promise is that even though it seems bleak and dark and dim right now, that someday better days are coming. Now today we're going to talk specifically about the word hope. Now let me ask you, what are some things people use the word hope to say? Because people use the word hope a lot. What do they say? Yeah, I hope I pass that class. Right? What else? I hope you feel better soon. Right? I hope you have a healthy baby. Um, I hope she likes me. I hope their marriage makes it. I hope I get a raise. I hope we have peace in our family at Christmas time. We use that small, magical word, hope. I think it's tough to live or even make it through a day without hope. Somebody said this is what hope is. Hope is a vision for better days that changes us in the present. So it's a vision of something better coming, something wonderful coming, something we excited about coming, but it's also something that changes us in the present. So, for example, if the students are hoping to pass the class, hopefully that's going to motivate them to work harder. If you're hoping for a raise, hopefully that means you're going to work harder. It's going to change your current behavior. Now, this is used throughout our country, especially at this time of year. And it's used with kids. We dangle in front of them the promise and the hope of a tree full of presents on the 25th of December. And on a day like today, when a parent takes a child to the grocery and they point at something they want on the shelf and the parent says no, and the temper begins to rise, parents will sometimes say a phrase like, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. Right? Why? Santa Claus is coming to town. Right? Now, what does that mean? you don't shape up, there ain't going to be presents under the tree. So if you want the hope of presents under the tree to come true, you better change your current behavior. Right? Now, parents, somebody, somebody in the first at 4 o'clock said, well, that's just cruel. Well, it, it may be, but we all use it. All right? Last night with my boys, they, they had destroyed the playroom downstairs. And I, I'm pretty lenient on the difference between it's 
completely picked up and it's destroyed. But the playroom was destroyed. And we have, I, I mentioned this on Sunday, we've been doing devotionals every night. And then following devotional, we have this Star Wars Lego advent calendar that they look forward to every day. They swap who opens until Eli realized that by swapping that day after day, Luke was getting all the men and Eli was getting all the ships. So he, he said, I'll let Luke open, two, Luke open two in a row. And I'll be kind to him. I said, you just want the men. It's what you want. I told him last night, if the playroom doesn't get picked up, no Star Wars figure tonight. There was weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> if it was just, you can't, you know, oh, Dad, we killed. So, well, who made the mess? I'll help you a little bit, but who made the mess? Uh, so, anyways, I'll tell you the conclusion of that story in a few minutes, all right? But we do this. The hope of something can modify our behavior today. So, here's Jeremiah. Jeremiah is an interesting guy because around the year 627, about. 620 years or so before Jesus was born, Jeremiah, as a 16 or 17-year-old, hears from the Lord, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart as a prophet unto the nation. So as a 16 or 17-year-old boy, Jeremiah hears, you are my chosen one. You are going to be a prophet to the nation. It's not the chosen one, not the Messiah, but you're going to be a prophet for me. Now, fast forward 40 years. Jeremiah is still a spiritual leader, but the nation is in crisis. It's 587 B.C., and Babylon has surrounded Jerusalem. Troops are all around the city. They have cut off all supplies in and out of Jerusalem, and as a result, the people inside Jerusalem are literally on the verge of starvation. Their king is a guy named Zedekiah. He's the king of Israel, and he thinks we can still beat these guys. We can still break them. We can win this war. And Jeremiah goes and says, no, you can't. It's over. Give up. The king of Babylon's coming into the city, and basically you can choose to do it the easy way or you can do it the hard way. And Zedekiah chose the hard way. The rest of the spiritual leaders had Zedekiah's ears, and they said, no, 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 you're good. You're the man. Anybody can do this. You can. Don't listen to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said, it's not a military issue. It's a spiritual issue. Our people have walked away from their covenant with God, so God is no longer on our side, so we can't win. The spiritual leader's like, God's always with us. This is the city of God. He's not going to let it fall. And Jeremiah said, he will let it fall because we have walked away from him. In Jeremiah 6, 14, it says, They dress the wounds of my people as though they were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. King Zedekiah didn't like Jeremiah's message. So what did he do to Jeremiah? Anybody know? He branded him an unpatriotic menace to national security arrested him, threw him in jail. He treated him as an enemy combatant. And in the midst of those circumstances, sitting in a jail cell, 
misunderstood, persecuted, hunted down, labeled, derided, Jeremiah will proclaim some of the most hopeful words from all of Scripture. Chapters 30 through 33, written while he was in prison, are sometimes called the Book of Hope. And it starts in chapter 30, verse 3. It says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the God of Israel says. Write in a book all the words I've spoken. Verse 3, it says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity, restore them to the land I gave their forefathers to possess, says the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, these prophets say there are hints, there are pictures, there are things that are coming. The clues and the pictures are powerful, and they say better days are ahead. And this is the opposite of the good old day syndrome. You know the good old days, right? Always in the past, always better back then. The prophets are the opposite of that. They say the good old days are coming. They're not in the past. And so in chapter 30 of Jeremiah, we get this beginning things. And, 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 and God's going to say, even though it's like this, it will be better. Better days are coming. Here's what's interesting to me about Jeremiah. He receives this word at possibly the lowest moment of his life. He's in jail. The town is starving. The spiritual advisors are giving bad advice and the king is listening to them. He can hear the siege happening. And yet, in the midst of his most terrible days, hope rises. You know what I think is interesting is the natural human tendency is to have hope when things are already pretty good. Well, they're good now, but I can see better days ahead. But the natural human tendency is once things start to turn bad, they just keep getting worse in your mind and where you ought to go. Think about just our nation right now. I remember when I was, it's been a few years ago now, but you remember when the, the, the dot-com boom hit the stock market? And that stock, the stock market just started taking off. I remember talking to people that I can't wait to get up in the morning and see what that stock market is doing. Just so excited. Couldn't wait to get up and see what the news and what was on and what was happening and the economy was booming and people were doing well. And it was great. Hope about what the future holds. We've got a new way to earn money. It's going to be unbelievable. Never going to be the same. What's the news like today? Economic indicators are down. Or, well, the economic indicators were up, but they think that was a blip in the system. It's probably going to be down next month. It's like when good news actually comes out, it surprises people, right? Now, I'm, I'm not getting into the whole political realm of what's going on. I, I'm just saying that generally hope follows good. But Jeremiah is at the lowest point of his life. And yet he is the most hopeful Four things about hope, real quickly. If you got your Bibles, turn to 30. Go ahead and turn over to 33, because that's where we're going to spend most of the rest of our time. Hope is about, or is based on, a promise. The reality is, 
Hope is only as good as the reliability of the one in whom you have hope. There are people that will come and give you false hope. There are people that will give you hope, but they don't have the ability to back up what they say. And if they can't back up what they say, then your hope is placed in a place that it shouldn't be. But that's not what we have with Jeremiah. Jeremiah's hope is based on a promise. Look what it says in verse 14 of chapter 33. The days are coming. You hear that phrase again? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise. It's this promise of God. Hope is based on a God who is there, a God who has left sufficient reasons for us to trust Him, a God who has proven Himself over and over and over again who always does what he says, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This view of hope out there that somehow we as Christians have blindly placed our trust in an unknown quantity is just simply false. We believe in a God who historically has done what he says he will do and says to us, I am what I have always been and will be always what I am. That's who we put our trust in. That's who Jeremiah's in. His trust in the Babylonian king or in Zedekiah or the army or anything except for the Lord God Almighty. Some people think Christians are crazy, irrational, dumb, because we just take what the Bible says at face value. But they'd be mistaken to conclude that's all that is about. Our hope in God is never pulled out of thin air. It's based on a particular history with God, both in Scripture and in our lives. Those experiences give us glimpses of God's character, provide reasons we should trust Him. And in the Bible, Jeremiah says, He hasn't failed me yet, so I'm going to put my hope in Him. So hope's about promise and about the ability of, that, of somebody to take it out, but hope's also about a person. Look what God says here in chapter 14. This is where we get to the Christmas story. The vision for a better future isn't based on wishful thinking or faith. Instead, it's promised on a specific person. It's not in a season or a program or a job or a spouse or a house. It's in a person. The biblical word for that is the Messiah. Here's what it says in verse 14. The days are coming when I fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Verse 15, in those days and at that time, another way to read that is at the exact right time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah hears from the Lord. You can have hope because of the promise I've given you and because of the person that is coming. He's described a couple of ways here. First of all, he is the righteous branch sprout from David's line. First of all, throughout the Old Testament, the greatest king was whom? David. David was the greatest king. He was flawed. He was imperfect but he was also a warrior and a man after God's own heart who did what God intended for him to do most of the time. Towards the end of David's life and through the rest of the Old Testament, 
God tells David, I'm going to rise up a king that is greater than you, but he's from your family. He will rule my people. He will bless the whole earth. Then Jeremiah says, not only is he from God given the name Branch Sprout from David's line, but he says he will be called the Lord our Righteousness. In the Bible, righteousness is a relational term. In other words, it means that he will do something, that someone will do what is right with regards to God and others. Now the Bible says, how many of us are going to do that perfectly? None. None of them are righteous. And the problem is, the standard is, you're either righteous or you're not. So I gave the boys a time limit last night. Because bedtime was approaching. You have 20 minutes to finish cleaning up. At 20 minutes, I said, is the room clean? Well, mostly. So if I come down there, and your room, and I see the playroom, is it going to be clean? Maybe, I said, what was this? And I said these words. What was my standard? They said, clean. I said, is the room clean? And the weeping and gnashing of teeth started again. So, I said, everybody upstairs, it's time for devotionals. Okay? Because the standard wasn't met. And my standard for them to get the gift was perfection. Not perfection, but clean. The Bible says that God gave us the same kind of standard. And we fail. You know, you hear people sometimes say, we're not perfect, we're just sinners saved by grace. It's true. But the way it says it sounds arrogant. And anybody that realizes what salvation really is, realizes there is no arrogance whatsoever that comes into the thought process that God saved us when we didn't deserve it. He says He'll be called the Lord, our righteousness. Not the righteous Lord, Not the Lord who is righteous. He's the Lord what? Our righteousness. In other words, He'll get it right all the time. He will be the only fully righteous human being who has ever lived. And the New Testament declares that the Lord our righteousness died on the cross, took upon Himself our unrighteousness, and in a marvelous exchange, we received His righteousness. He became our righteousness. So I did the devotion with the boys. And it was on Isaiah 53. And we had a gospel discussion about getting things that we don't deserve. And at the end of the discussion, we had a discussion about Christ taking our penalty and then giving us life that we didn't deserve. 
And as the tears were drying, I said, tonight you're going to receive grace. Because you're going to get what you did not earn. Which is you're going to get to open the Star Wars figure. Now, who would have ever thought you'd use a Star Wars Lego figure to talk about grace in the presence of Christ? It was unbelievable, the joy on their face. They went over. It was Luke's turn. He about ripped the whole box open. It's one of these little things you open up a door. You have to open the door and reach in and get And it was R2-D2's clone. I don't, it wasn't R2-D2, but Luke thinks it is. It looks, it's, it's a different color. And they understood a little bit. They didn't get the full gospel last night. Luke expected. Eli's grasping it. Jeremiah realizes in what God says to him, we're going to get what we don't deserve. And here's the thing. Hope changes us in the present. It's about a promise and a person, but it changes how we act. I mean, all this kind of sounds academic in one way. You know, it's the righteousness of God, the, the imputation of sin, the propitiation for our sin. You can get real academic. But where the rubber meets the road is when we realize the hope that we have, it ought to turn our world upside down. Once you begin down the path of hope, there is no turning back. Now, let me tell you this. If you are fine with the way life is and just stay in status quo, then you go ahead and be hopeless. Because when you get a picture of what life could be like, it changes what you're willing to do. It changes you in the present. It changes you in the moment. And you begin to act on the fact that God has done that. Your heart starts to burst with longing. You start to become vulnerable because you realize that there is something better out there. Someone has said, hope will lift you up and then turn you upside down. Now, when we place our hope in the Lord, that's a good thing because Romans 5, 5 says, hope does not disappoint. Hope says that there's a beautiful and a good future and it says it's coming, it's coming, it'll be yours. The one who promised it is faithful and true, but you have to wait for it. And if you've here and you've opened your heart to Jesus, you have a vision of better days. If actually, as a follower of Jesus, the better days have come in part because what the Old Testament is talking about, we have received in Jesus Christ. But there's still a day when the second coming is happening. A second advent will occur. And all things will be made right. The power of God is available today. Just, it'll be better in the future. And once you start to travel down that road, you see your life completely change. Anybody seen the movie Shawshank Redemption? Story of two guys in prison. And they're hatching a plot to escape. And you're rooting for them to escape, right? Those are kind of always a little crazy. In that movie, one of the characters says, hope is a dangerous thing. It can drive us insane. For them, the thought of getting out of those prison walls drives them. But if it gets taken away or it's not coming fast enough, it can drive you insane. The thing is, 
when we place our hope in a sure thing like Jesus, it ought to give us the ability to take risks we wouldn't normally take in living for Him. And it ought to change our behavior here and now. You know one of the interesting things that happened last night? They opened their Star Wars. They went and brushed their teeth. They got ready for bed. They had their pajamas on. They were ready to go. And I went into, to, Susan and I went in to do something. And I went back to go into their bed to say goodnight to them, say, night-night, boys. And they weren't there. And I started looking around the house. Where are they? Well, our playroom is downstairs. And I could hear something coming out of the playroom. And I said, boys, what are y'all doing? And both of them said, we decided to go ahead and finish cleaning up. And I thought, that's a picture of grace driving you. They cleaned up more in the last, in five minutes after they got the figure than they did in the 20 before. But it also gives you the ability to risk because you know the future can be great. I love the story that comes Actually, in chapter 32, I'm not going to read it. You can go back and look at it today, but it's a, a great story. He's in prison. <laughs> he knows what's about to happen to Jerusalem. He knows what's about to happen. It's about to fall. It's about to be destroyed. And while he's in prison, one of his relatives, his uncle, pays him a visit and says, Jeremiah, man, i got this unbelievable real estate deal I want you to invest in. There's this patch of land in the suburbs of Jerusalem. It would be perfect for you. Now, where's Jeremiah? He's in prison. What's happening to Jerusalem? It's under siege. I don't know a lot about the real estate game. Kathy Decker's back there. I don't know a lot. But I would guess that when your town's about to fall to an enemy, is not the best time to invest in land. Right? I'm just going to guess that. And so he comes to him and says, I've got this great land opportunity. And you know what Jeremiah says? I'll take it. Because he remembers that God has promised they're coming back. And it is a sign of his belief and hope in the Lord that I'm buying the land to take it. Because we're coming back. And it's not just a pie in the sky. Well, one day I'll make, it on, I'll make a return on my investment. It is a solid confidence in the Lord that what He says, He will do. Now, here's the thing. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> you have to ask the Lord that when you get to heaven. So He knows that He's coming. He knows that Jerusalem's coming back. So it's a good investment. But it's a symbol of the risk He's willing to take because of the hope He finds in the Lord. Here's the last thing I'll tell you about hope. When you begin to hope, you will open yourself up and become vulnerable. Because the reward is so great that you're willing to risk whatever you got. I, I was a sophomore in Union. And growing up, I wouldn't have got it dated a lot. In fact, by the time I was a sophomore in Union, I had, had zero serious relationships. And just to be honest with you, I look back on that now and I thank the Lord for protection from that and emotionally and physically and a lot of things. I just thank the Lord for that. But as a sophomore at Union, I began to see the light at the end of the tunnel known as graduation. 
And I just said to the Lord one night, I was kind of sitting in bed, I said, Lord, just having a little discussion here. Churches don't hire single pastors much. And the best chance I got to find a wife is going to be here. I'd like for that to begin to move towards something. The Lord heard my prayer and didn't do anything for a while. Well, then I started talking to this girl my junior year. We'd been friends before, but I realized I kind of was thinking more than thinking. And I vividly remember the time when I had to say to her, Susan, I think we need to think about going out or seeing if this will work. Nate, you talk about being vulnerable in a moment. But what happened was, at that moment, the hope of what could be far outweighed the risk of what I could lose. The thing we have with the Lord and what Jeremiah sees is the hope of what could be and what he has promised far outweighs what we might lose in the present. Hope is a future that we believe in that changes how we act in the present. Let me ask you four questions as we finish. In life, is your hope centered in the person of Jesus Christ or is it centered on something else? Secondly, as you have grown in your faith or as you have, let me put it a different way, as you have matured in your years as a believer of Jesus Christ, has your ability to risk because of that hope expanded or have you become more closed? How has hope ruined your life? How has it changed what was status quo in your life and given you a hope of something else? And here's the last one. What are you willing to risk because of who Jesus is and what he's done? Because the surest sign of whether you believe in the hope of Jesus is answering the question, what am I willing to risk? What's too much to give?